It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you're dead. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. 17-14 at the final. One touchdown, we are world champions. Believe it, and it will happen. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com as well as the mobile app. He's Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes and the program presented by Cadillac, the official luxury vehicle of the New York football Giants. Multiple ways you can interact with us here on the program. You give us a ring, 201-939-4513. You can also hit us up on Twitter, hashtag Giants Chat, and you can follow and interact with the two of us directly. I'm at Lance Meadow, one word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Giants WFAN. And a reminder, you can find the archive of this show and our entire podcast network on the Giants mobile app, podcast platforms everywhere, and at Giants.com slash podcast. So we'll recap conference championship weekend, two eventful games. But before we get into that and get to some of your reaction from what transpired this weekend, we bring in our very own John Schmelk as he has been on the road over the last few days. First at the Shrine Bowl, now making his way to the Senior Bowl. John, how are we doing? Uh, we're good. We're on the tarmac here in Atlanta after a very quick layover, and uh, we are going to be taking off in about 15 minutes for uh, beautiful Mobile, Alabama. Uh, I got to tell you, though, guys, I feel for Lions fans after that game yesterday. That is about as bad of a way as you can lose a playoff football game. Yeah, that was brutal. That was brutal, John. I, I know you don't have a lot of time, so I want to get right to what you've seen the last couple of days. Give me your top three guys that you've seen at these two Shrine Bowl practices that you're saying to yourself, I got to keep an eye on these three guys over the next three months to see where where they're going to be going in the draft. Yeah, that, that's a good question. By the way, if, if you want to go to Giants.com, my practice report is up there right now for the people that, that want to go and check that out. Um, I really like the offensive line group that was down there in Frisco. And one of the guys that I really like is from the West team. Uh, South Dakota State Ball, as you well know, has one of the best yeah. um F- CS programs in the country. They've won a couple national championships in a row. Uh, Mason McCormick, who was there for five or six years, uh, played guard there, but he played both guard and center down there in Frisco. And he's got a nasty streak to him. He put a couple, he put one guy on his back during team drills. Um, he was very impressive. He has a teammate there as well, Garrett Greenfield, uh, an offensive tackle. I like McCormick a little more. He's got pretty good feet. He's strong. I think he's a guy that, that could be one of those kind of round four-ish, five-ish type of pick that maybe um, could be a guy that could uh, start in the NFL. Um, a couple of wide receivers I really like. You had Malik Washington, who was there mm-hmm. from the University of Virginia. Imagine you took Debo Samuel and, like, compressed him into his body. <laughs> That's pretty much what he is, right? I don't know what his 40 times going to be, and that might end up dropping him far in the draft. But he is quick as hell. He's got a really thick lower body. He can. I, when you watch him on tape, he breaks a bunch of tackles. He's a really good route runner. And I had a chance to talk to him as well. And you can go check out a lot of those player interviews from from the Shrine Bowl and the John Kittle podcast. Um, he's a guy that that impressed me. A wide receiver. Uh, wide receiver. Another team that I really liked too was um, Isaiah Williams from Illinois. He's a converted quarterback. And I asked him one question, and he gave like a three and a half minute. Uh, dissertation on the nuances of route running, which is a really good answer. So I, I like him. And then there are a couple pass rushers there that I like to mention. A couple. I know you mentioned three. Paul. I mentioned two other guys. Okay. Um, there was there was one pass rusher, um, a couple pass rushers that I really like. The Murphy brothers from from UCLA were both edge players. Uh, they're not quite at the level of uh, 
Latu Latu, who's going to be down there in Mobile. He's going to be a top 15, 20 pick. These guys will probably be mid-round picks. They were pretty good. Grambling State, uh, Sundiata Anderson, he moved really well down there. Xavier Thomas is a six-year player out of Clemson. He was probably overall the best athlete down there. Um, just long, athletic. And, and then Yabi Oki, um, he attended five different schools over the course of his college career. Uh, he went from Alabama to UT Martin to Michigan with a stop in Houston in between where he didn't even play any games. He was like in Houston for like a semester. And then he wound up in Charlotte. Um, again, he's one of those guys that kind of, you know, checks all the boxes in terms of, um, in terms of, uh, uh, athletic traits and things like that. And then the one really interesting player, a cornerback, he's never played college football. He played for the Toronto Argonauts in the CFL, CFL guy, last yeah. year. Correct. He's a guy that could not go play college football. He had a family tragedy. His father died when he was young. So he ended up leaving school, went back, tried to help his mom, ended up signing up for some players-only league. But since it's a professional league, that eliminated his amateur status. So he couldn't go back and play college football. So he's a guy that is now going through the draft process for the first time. And he was probably the best quarterback there. He was a really good story. Uh, Quantez Stiggers is his name. And he was really fun to watch. Well, the kid that went to five different schools, that's a product of the transfer portal. If I ever saw yeah. a player that fully demonstrated oh. how the college landscape plays out. What about, John, the overall intensity of the practices? Because obviously we look at the practices more than the games. What did you think of structure-wise and who maybe capitalized the most in those one-on-one -on -one situations, whether it be up front or in terms of wide receivers versus defensive backs? No, absolutely. Um, I think the intensity was good. These kids know that, you know, even compared to the kids at the senior ball, right, who are, you know, probably going to have a half dozen first-round picks at the senior bowl this year. You know, you're not going to have any first-round picks to try, right? So these guys are trying to make the most of the opportunity. So the intensity was good. Mike Kafka is one of the head coaches down there, so he made sure the kids were in a good position to practice. Guys I thought did well in practice, besides the guys I already mentioned, um, the Michigan wide receiver, the big kid, uh, Denard Robinson, um, uh, Cornelius Johnson, pardon me, 6'3", um, 211", and even at that size, he was be able to separate and make some plays and get over the top. So Paul of the skyscraper, that's a guy I think you can kind of keep your eye on in the middle rounds there. A couple, and again, I thought the offensive line group was just really strong. So um, Christian Boyd, Northern Iowa defensive tackle, um, I thought did really well one-on-one. -on -one. So those are a couple guys from that, uh, that I think kind of did well in practice aside from that first group that I mentioned. I had seen a quick video, John. I know you're running out of time, but I saw a quick video somebody posted on the Internet that Mike Kafka did have a presser. Did you get a chance to either talk to him on the side or go to that presser? Yeah, the, uh, the, the head coaches talk after each press conference. So I was there, and I thought he did, I thought he did a pretty good job answering questions. And the flight attendants haven't even addressed the, uh, the plane here yet. So I, I have a couple of minutes if you guys need it. But, well, um, well was any, did, did, did Kafka say anything that kind of caught your eye as to, A, how he was going to run things, or B, about any player in particular that he seemed excited about? No, he didn't really answer much about individual players quite yet. I have a one-on-one -on -one with Mike Kafka, too. That's going to be going up on Giants.com at some point in the next couple of days. Um, but, no, you know, these, these coaches don't like to single out players generally, Paul. You know how that goes? Mm -hmm. So he really didn't get any individual players. Well, and he didn't necessarily do that 
over the past season with the Giants. So I'm not necessarily <laughs> surprised. John. Seems as if he's following the model, which is understandable. Listen, it's all about consistency and so forth. So I know you're en route to get to the Senior Bowl, but as we quickly look ahead, John, anything in particular that you're going to hone in on in the first day or two? Obviously, today was a big measurements day. But what at least catches your attention the most, perhaps, in the early stages here as we look ahead to the Senior Bowl? Yeah, we're going to practice on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. I'll have practice reports going up every uh, night or the following morning on Giants.com for people to check that out. Again, I think it's a great offensive line group at, at the Senior Bowl. Um, now, we'll see how many of these guys end up pulling out right before the game. That has happened in years past, right? But you've got guys like Tyler Guyton is going to be a first-round pick. Jordan Morgan is going to be a, a first-round pick. Uh, uh, Fatnu from Washington is going to be a first-round pick. Um, there's a bunch of offensive linemen here that are that are going to be a lot of fun to watch. And there's some good defensive tactics, too. So I think you're going to have some good one-on-one matchups in those one-on-ones down there at the Senior Bowl. It's a very strong offensive line class in general, and I think that's reflected in the players that are going to be down there in Mobile. So that's the group I'm really going to be watching the most uh, when it comes to the Senior Bowl. It could be a lot of fun. And remember, you have two really good quarterbacks, too, in, in Michael Penix and Bo Nix. Both sure. those guys will be vying to try to get into the first round. So that'll make... You know, as much as the wide receiver DB one-on-ones are fun because you're watching the DBs and the wide receiver, well, you get to see those quarterbacks too. And both those quarterbacks will be with Shane Tierney, the Giants' uh, quarterback coach is the offensive coordinator for that team down there in Mobile. So the Giants will get up close and personal with those players um, over the course of the week. Mike Kafka at the Shrine Bowl, Shane Tierney at the Senior Bowl. And just a quick observation here, John, I could tell the Atlanta sound system is very strong in terms of its music. So, <laughs> yeah, you are definitely going to hear the announcements when you're ready to uh, approach liftoff here on your flight. I can tell you that. Yeah, they want to make sure everyone's having fun and relaxed. There you go. Before we take off mobile, I guess, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John, safe travels. We'll catch up with you in the upcoming days here. Be good. All right, sounds good, guys. Yeah. I'll, I'll talk to you tomorrow live from practice. Sounds good. That is our very own John Schmelk. Gearing up to arrive and get on the land and up close and personal with respect to the Senior Bowl. Brief report on the Shrine Bowl. And as he mentioned, head to Giants.com. He has a breakdown of the West team and the East team. His observations during the course of practice from some of the standout players, both up front, wide receivers, cornerbacks, you name it. Pretty detailed synopsis. And he'll be doing that on a daily basis once he gets to Mobile, Alabama for the Senior Bowl. So that is the latest in terms of the All-Star games. But then there was actually some meaningful football mm. call yeah. yesterday and I, I want to get into and before we, before we do that well. before yeah. we do that Maz I, I, I'm getting a message here on Twitter saying that the audio may not be coming through do we know it's okay great just want to make sure we got to that well, see, because you're going to have so many words of wisdom about the playoff games I didn't want people to miss them well I thought they were just drained out by the music system in Atlanta <laughs> that's what I thought perhaps the reaction came from because I mean John was navigating you know getting through the rhythm and blues section there you of go. the Atlanta airport but we were able to hear him loud and clear thanks to the technology but now that everything is cooperating both from a, a visual and an audio perspective we can move on to conference championship weekend and to me one of the biggest takeaways Paul is I think both the Lions and the Ravens they're really going to have a detailed coulda woulda shoulda game going on this offseason because both of those teams had multiple opportunities to get the job done Baltimore had three turnovers two of which were in the end zone forget the red zone Paul 
they were right in the end zone. The most notable one was obviously when Zay Flowers was diving in and Legereus Sneed just made a fantastic punch out. That's a play that everybody should remember if they ultimately go on and win the Super Bowl. And the Lions, the same thing. A pair of fourth down conversions, though. Hey, that's Dan Campbell's MO. He wasn't out of character. If you want to criticize the Lions, that's fine. I'm not saying that it's not right to do that. But if you watch the Lions all season, Dan Campbell did that all year long. So it's not as if he got to the playoffs and he said, okay, we're going to start doing something different. The biggest costly decision was running the ball in the red zone and wasting a timeout Mm -hmm. when after you give the ball back to the Niners, you still have two timeouts. You have a third one. Now, all of a sudden, you may get the ball back. Limited time, but I'd like my chances to at least get the ball back at that point only down by three points. Yeah, folks in this program, you know I don't second guess. I always first guess. I thought he made two horrible decisions to go for the fourth downs and then obviously, as you said, uh, wound up wasting extra clock on the running play there at the end. Um, and Reynolds also could have caught that ball on one of the I know downs. he could have. It wasn't a terrible I know call. he could have, yeah. but the coach's job is to give his team the best chance to win, put them it. in the best possible position. As far as I'm concerned, Dan Campbell did not do that. He put his team in the worst possible position, which made it very easy for them to fail, and they did. I mean, they, they, they backed him up. He put them in a bad spot, and they said, okay, great. We're in a bad spot. We're going to screw it up even worse, and they did. Um, That, to me, was probably one of the most gift-wrapped games I have ever seen in my 41 years of covering the National Football League. It was absolutely gift-wrapped by the Lions to San Francisco. Uh, and, And you know what? Look, I know when the door is open, you still have to kick it down and walk through it. So I will not I will not take all the credit away from San Francisco because Purdy did use his legs a few times, sure. did make some nice throws. Ayuk made a ridiculous catch full of concentration, which of course should have been an interception. So that's one of those plays where you have both sides of the coin. You have a horrible failure by the Lions which put a bow on top of the present that was gift-wrapped. And then you have Ayuk saying, well, you know, I'm a premier receiver, and thank you very much for that gift. I'm going to make sure that I take it. So that that's both sides of that coin. Though the Niners, if you remember, returned the favor because you had Thomas deflect the ball that yeah. Jamison Williams was bobbling, yeah. and then he caught it. So I sort of see those two canceling out, but go ahead. In, in any event... Uh, very, very, very difficult uh, if you're a Detroit uh, fan. And I think to your point, yes, that's the type of aggressiveness that Dan Campbell showed all season. But see, as a head coach, you have a responsibility to read the room, to read the game, if you will. We always talk about context, Lance. In the context of what was going on, he needed to kick that first field goal to put his team up by three scores going on late in the third quarter. It, it made absolutely zero sense to go for it. I don't care what his pattern was during the season. At that moment in time, you have to do the smart thing. So forget about what his trend was. He's got to be smart enough at that moment in time to make the logical selection. And then, of course, later on, he had a chance to not only tie the game with a field goal, but in addition to that, at least put a momentary halt to the Niners' momentum. They had stolen the game flow and taken over the narrative. Getting those three points there wasn't just going to tie the game. 
it was going to momentarily tell the 49ers, okay, you're not going to steamroll this thing to the finish and knock us out of the playoffs. So he made two horrific decisions. And then, as you said, with the running play down in the red zone, yeah, and just that was the worst of made all. absolutely no sense whatsoever. So it was a complete gift to San Francisco, but they will gladly take it and now move on. As far as Baltimore, there you go again with the premier running quarterback in this league, uh, you know, Jackson, who comes up small in the playoffs. I think he's been knocked out of the playoffs four different times now. Right. Without well, this was the second time in which Baltimore was the number one seed yeah. and failed to get to the Super Bowl. Yeah, horrible yeah. interception he threw down uh, in, in the coverage. end zone. Yep. No way in the world you can make that throw. It's ironic, right? Purdy's a pocket guy who has some escapability. Holmes, uh, Mahomes is a pocket guy who has some escapability. And here we are again in the Super Bowl with two pocket passers who have some escapability. Because that's what you need in in a premier championship-level quarterback. You don't need a quarterback who runs for 1,000 yards, who makes it a premier or primary part of his game, because those running quarterbacks, ultimately, when push comes to shove, they don't have the gut check in the most premier of situations. And Jackson fails again in the playoffs, and... Hey, it, it is what it is. Uh, you know, he can win all his well, MVPs during the regular season. That doesn't do anything for the Lombardis. Well, but, I mean, it's interesting. I know you classify him that way. I'm not disputing that's his classification, but he only ran the ball eight times. They were not actually a run-heavy team. Oh, I, I understand, but see, City. here's, here's they, the mistake. They were running it as much this season with Lamar. He was more of a packet passer. Actually. More than in the past. Yeah, but see, But then in the game this past weekend, they didn't rely enough on the run game. No, and it wasn't the and, run game. And yeah. it didn't need to be him. It should have been no, their line and their running backs. Sure. Yeah. Instead, they put the ball in his hands and asked him to win it through the air. He couldn't do it. Well, they became too reliant on one facet. No question. Game. But, I mean, here's the thing. As I mentioned earlier, Zay Flowers makes a great catch. He dives into the end zone. Sneed knocks the ball out. I mean, yep. that easily is a touchdown there, That's Paul. true. Okay? No doubt. They're down no doubt. by three then. We got an entire quarter to go. That play happened on the very first play of the fourth quarter. So just mm-hmm. imagine in a hypothetical world, and I don't know what happens after that, but let's say it's 17-14. Baltimore's defense pitched a shutout in the second half. Ravens' defense kept them in the game. Does Lamar throw that ball into triple coverage? If he needs a field goal, as Don't opposed know. to his team is down by ten, I just I wonder, right? I know Sometimes this game flow dictates what you do with the football. We talk about that all the time. Game yeah. flow is incredibly important. I know this. Steve Spagnolo got in his head. Oh, Spags did a great job. That's and so what did I the know. Chiefs defense. Yeah. You when you get to this level and you're going a couple of rounds into the playoffs, you know you're talking about elite coaches for the most part. Although Campbell didn't show it yesterday, you're talking about elite defenses. You're talking about coordinators, for sure, who have the ability to schematically play with your head. Lamar Jackson couldn't deal with it. Steve Spagnuolo got in his head. Well, he got a lot of pressure on Lamar. They were able to get hits on Lamar. Not sacks, No question. They got hits. They got eight quarterback hits, which was big. But I think the biggest thing of all, Baltimore was one of the best offenses this season. Why was Baltimore one of the best offenses this season? Explosive plays. They barely had any explosive plays. 
That's a big reason why they settled for 10 points. Their longest run play was Lamar, 21 yards. And you could say, okay, well, they only ran the ball 16 times. And the conventional backs, and I'll throw Zay Flowers into the equation, ran the ball eight times. So half of their runs were with those three guys, Gus Edwards, Zay Flowers, Justice Hill. But nearly, not nearly as much as what we saw during the regular season. And then... You had the Zay Flowers touchdown from 54 yards out. Nelson Aguilar had the 39-yard catch and run. That was it, Paul. Yeah. I mean, nothing explosive whatsoever. So Spags' unit did a really nice job telling Baltimore, okay, if you want to score, you're going to have to do it the methodical way. You right. have to go 11 plays, 80-some-odd yards. And they were able to move the ball. They just could not finish drives. And, and when you talk about game flow, had Baltimore gotten the Flowers touchdown, Okay, let's just say for argument's sake they close the gap. Well, game flow changes now for Kansas City because now Mahomes feels a sense of urgency to widen that gap again. Well, that's why I said it's hard to have a hypothetical conversation because you don't know what's going to change. So I'm I'm not going to go on one play by Zay Flowers and say, well, that kind of changed the narrative. No, but it was a backbreaker. It was a it was a big play. It was a huge play. Huge play. Yeah. But I look at the full four quarter body of work, and ultimately. The biggest issue for me is that they put the ball in Jackson's hands and and he just did not have a good day. He was flummoxed by Steve Spagnuolo. And that's that's the reason why the Chiefs are going to the Super Bowl. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's impressive because, once again, the Chiefs are not nearly as explosive as they were in previous years. But they found a way to move the identity of the team in the direction of the defense. Remember, Kansas City was right behind Baltimore. Number two scoring defense mm-hmm. in the NFL. So mm-hmm. what they did against the Ravens is not stunning. It's impressive because very few teams have been able to do this to Baltimore. But Spags' unit is what defined that team. And San Francisco is going to also be exposed to a really good Chiefs defense. And if they don't have the explosive plays, you wonder how does Brock Purdy and company operate? Well, one thing I think they should take away from the Baltimore performance is do not abandon the run. Now, something tells me they won't do that because they have Christian McCaffrey. But you can't all of a sudden become a one-dimensional team where now Purdy's got to throw the ball 37 to 40 times. Because Lamar, you look at it, 37 pass attempts, Mm -hmm. sacked four times. That means 41 times Mm -hmm. Lamar dropped back. That plays right into the hands of Spags' very aggressive blitz happening. Well, defense. then he had some rushes, which were scrambles, which were also dropbacks. So it's okay, actually more than 41. That, but, that's, but I'm just going by the textbook definition of in terms of pass yeah. plays versus sacks. Even 41, though. Take away the runs. Oh, it's, is it's ridiculous. In a game like that. It's, it's crazy. Especially when you're only down by 10, really, for the majority of the contest. No doubt. Yeah. And, and think about it. What most people have said over the years is you want to keep the ball away from Holmes. Mahomes. People will say, run it, control the clock, control the narrative. Don't rely on your passing game. Don't get in, Don't try to get into one of those games where yep. Mahomes is going to have the ball a lot. Try to methodically grind it out. The Ravens decided not to do that for whatever reason. They decided that they were not going to play that kind of black and blue football. And, you know, you could talk about strategy all you want, Ultimately, the execution was better on Kansas City's side, but but to me, the star of that game was Steve Spagnuolo, and I'm, I'm thrilled for him. Well, that's where the game was decided because although I know Kansas City marched down the field on that opening drive, outside of that, I thought the Ravens' defense played a really good game. They held they Kansas City scoreless in the second half. Paul, the three turnovers, and you know I talk about this all the time. It's not taking away the ball. It's what you do with them. Mm -hmm. Kansas City didn't score any points off of any of those Baltimore turnovers. That's a reflection of the defense, is it not, for Baltimore? So 
Mike McDonald, who obviously is a hot commodity on the coaching front, his unit came to play yesterday. Well, I didn't think KC's was, offensive line played that well. Well, they had some penalties, which proved to be costly. They, they were a little sloppy. Had they were a little sloppy. holding penalties, which I thought were borderline, but still. That's what I think did them in. And the running numbers, 32 runs for 89 yards. So they yeah. didn't have explosion with Isaiah Pacheco. And we know Mahomes faced some pressure. I mean, he used his legs. Rasheed Rice and Travis Kelsey made some plays. MVS, Valdez-Scantling made some big plays. But it wasn't anything that if I was Mike McDonald, the Ravens' defensive coordinator, I would say, oh, man, this is too overwhelming. It never got to that point. No, they were, they were clearly in the game. Yeah. They were clearly in the game. I if, mean, if you know. anything, you know, I didn't mean to cut you off. If anything, I thought the Lions offense did a number on the Niners defense more so than Kansas City well, against Baltimore. And see, that to me, that was the best example of football 101, where the Lions offensive line totally controlled the game flow and the narrative for the entire first half. Okay? And then when they got sabotaged by bad play calling, Bad decisions and then physical mistakes. And the Niners stole the momentum and the wave started to go into the other direction. They had one chance to stop it. And that was the second, fourth down to kick that field goal. That was the only chance that they had to really stop all of the Niners' momentum and maybe, just maybe, salvage that game. And... They didn't go for the field goal. They went for the fourth down, and the Niners just decided they were going to blow that dam down and just flood the town and drown everybody. And that's what they did. It, it, you know, uh, and it's a shame because going into the game, I felt the only way that Detroit could win that game was if their offensive line, as banged up as it was, yeah, Charlie and it Jackson was hurt. was out. Frank Ragnow banged up at center. Badly banged up. I had told someone who I have friends out in San Francisco who are big Niners fans. I, I know it's tough. I, I don't enjoy talking to them, but they're still my friends. <laughs> and I told them, I said, the one way Detroit's one path to victory is if their offensive line decides, forget about the bumps and bruises, we will control the game. And if they play football one-on-one and the O-line says, we're taking the control of this game, we will determine the narrative and the game flow. That's the only way Detroit can win. And they dominated for the first half. And then, boom, it just all fell apart. Did you see on some of the running plays in the second half, the penetration all of a sudden that the Niners offensive line got? And there was no room at all for the Lions to even execute a play. It was practically difficult enough for them to even get a snap off. It just totally changed. And once that happened... You knew, you knew that Detroit was in deep, deep trouble. They were going to need that old line to control the game for all four quarters. Well, look at the first half possessions versus the second half possessions. To me, it tells the whole game. Detroit, touchdown, touchdown, punt, touchdown, field goal. That's the first half. Mm -hmm. Second half, turnover on downs, fumble, punt, turnover on downs. Then they got the late touchdown. So they didn't get another score until the very final minute of the contest because of the two failed fourth down conversions then the Jameer Gibbs fumble to me was also a huge the, the switch field of momentum position. as well yeah right tilted the field yeah because you gave San Francisco the ball off of that fumble they took over at the Detroit 24 yard but line. that's why I say 
The coach did not, Campbell did not put them in the best position to win, and he made numerous mistakes. And then his players compounded those mistakes by making physical errors that just made it worse. Gift wrapped to the nth degree. They wrapped it up. They put a bow on it. They sealed it with a kiss. The only thing they didn't do was give the 49ers a 30-day money-back guarantee. Well, they did find creative ways to allow the Niners to get back in the game because you had turnovers. You had point and scoring opportunities that you gave away. You had balls deflecting off of the heads of defenders mm-hmm. that needed receptions. You name it. The whole nine yards uh. on full display. And that's why we talk about you could play great for three and a half quarters if you don't take care of business that final half of the fourth, it doesn't really matter, especially with so many games highly competitive in the NFL that are decided by one score. All right, let's open up the phone lines as we move forward here on Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. First of all, just a few reminders, Giants Huddle Podcast. You can check that out. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or you go to Giants.com slash podcast. As we look ahead to the 2024 campaign, you can take your fandom to the next level with a season ticket membership. Stay connected to the club all year round, not just on game days. Memberships are now available for the 2024 season. To learn more about all the exclusive member benefits, visit Giants.com slash tickets. Limited inventory is available. And the Giants official connected TV streaming app, Giants TV. It brings you original video content and game highlights on demand and direct to Big Blue fans. Giants TV, it's free. It's on Apple TV, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, and the Giants mobile app. All right, let's open up the phone lines as we move forward here, and we check in with Logan in Pennsylvania. Logan, welcome to the program. What do you got for us? Hey, how you doing? I just want to talk about the Giants quarterback situation. Sure. What do you got for us? You know, what I saw from Daniel Jones this season, it wasn't worth $40 million. What I saw from Tommy DeVito, though, that's worth another contract. You know, I think, you know... Well, he's already under contract. Daniel Jones. So, you don't have to give Tommy DeVito... DeVito is signed DeVito already. signed already. You don't have to he, give him... He, he had more than a one-year deal. Yeah. So he's here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, 2025 offseason comes around. It's either he's a backup guy or we cut Tom, or uh, Daniel Jones. I think, you know, well, they could very well bring in season. another quarterback, Logan. I think you're getting ahead of yourself. <laughs> you're, you're making it sound as if it's Daniel Jones versus Tommy DeVito. They could draft a quarterback. They could bring back Tyrod Taylor. They could sign another free agent. The options are beyond just those two, especially when it comes to the depth chart. I'd like to know why you're so worried about 2025. <laughs> There's another whole season to go before that. Yeah, I mean, with... I mean, also, you got to get you know, more options. Even if they don't draft a wide receiver in the draft, you got to go out and sign one. Michael Pittman's one of my first options. If you don't get him, try for T. Higgins or Noah Brown. Those are my options for the court or uh, receivers for the Giants. So, but I, I guess I'm lost. So your point is you don't want them spending money on another quarterback because you want to address other positions? Is that your point? I mean, yeah, I don't think we need to spend more money on uh, quarterbacks, I think we just need to spend money on the O-line. and. Brian well, well let, let me ask you this, Logan. So you're telling me if we go down the hypothetical road, let's say Daniel Jones is not ready to go week one, okay? Meaning he's going to play next season, but he's not ready to go. He's still recovering. You're comfortable with Tommy DeVito being the only option. They just give him the starting job, and that's how the offense operates. Meaning you want to spend all the money on items around the quarterback, but Tommy is the guy, he's the only guy they turn to if Daniel's not ready to go. Is that what you're pretty much laying out? I mean, that's how it sounds. Say that I again? Mean, you could battle them in the preseason, but 
from the timeline, Daniel's going to be ready to go. Well, but if he's not, yeah, you, well, I'm you, operating. Whoa, whoa, with, you, let's you, say he's not though. No, but you don't. There's no guarantees in life. We don't I, know anything. I haven't heard anybody within the Giants organization present a timeline for Daniel Jones's yeah. leg. I've, if you have one, maybe you know his surgeon, but but nobody else does. You got to be careful. I mean, I I mean look, look, look at it this way. Here, here, we'll let you go on this. General Manager Joe Shane told the media at the end of the season he has to address the quarterback situation because right now he's got DeVito under contract, who's healthy. He's got Jones under contract, who is rehabbing. That's all he's got. He knows that Tyrod Taylor has the uh, the trigger that makes him a free agent in another month or so. Yep. And so he said point blank, we've got to address that. There will be a third quarterback and maybe even a fourth in Giants camp during the course of the offseason. They are not going into training camp with only Daniel Jones and Tommy DeVito. And they can't because right they, now it's absolutely. too Absolutely. Yeah. You, uh, you cannot under any circumstances. Yeah. Now... Again, do you want to spend a lot of resources to bring in that third guy or just a little? That is an open debate, but to suggest that you can ignore it entirely, it makes no sense. Yeah, plus you could talk all you want about the weaponry around the quarterback. If you don't have a guy you feel secure about throwing the ball to these weapons, what difference does it make? So you need to prioritize this signal caller. I'm assuming, of course, if Daniel Jones is not ready. And we're not saying that he's not going to be ready, but no definitive timetable has been presented. And every player, Paul, is different coming off a torn ACL. Case in point, Wondell Robinson, he was hurt in week 11 the previous season. Mm -hmm. But even though Wondell didn't start off on pup, you could tell it took him several weeks before he got his feet back under him. He will tell you, if you had a chance to talk to him, and I did every week, it wasn't until the final few weeks of this season, maybe the final month, where he said, I'm really starting to get close to where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. And remember, Daniel's a runner. He's a guy that uses well, his legs. So you have to wonder, he may be ready to come back to throw the ball, but what does that mean in terms of his limitations or his abilities to extend plays. That's another big part of his game and a huge part of his skill set. That's what I think is being missed about the whole evaluation and the recovery from a torn ACL, Paul. It's not questioning Daniel's arm strength and his ability to throw the ball. He didn't hurt his arm. It's about what the knee presents limitation-wise to him operating beyond just being a pocket passer, too. Well, mechanically speaking, quarterbacks use their lower body to throw so it's not even about his running ability but that that is that needs to be gauged but in addition to that it's also about his mechanics and throwing the football this this is tricky i mean it's it's not a slam dunk that he's ready for week one and the giants have to plan accordingly let's head back to the phone lines we got mike in massachusetts with us what's happening mike what do you got for us Hey, uh, first one to uh, Paul, since he is a Fordham graduate. Paul, have you ever met Charles Odgood Good? No. Okay. okay. Never did. That answers, that and, and, that and, and may he rest in peace. Yes, yes. Um, the other is a consensus question from a group of guys. There are two of them. Two questions. One is rebuilding... The, um, the the Giants, uh, everybody agrees that they should rebuild via the, the line. The, the question is, 
how do you go about it? And you and Coach Marvin and others have suggested some scenarios. I want to tell you that 10 guys out of 12 could not agree on the approach to rebuilding the mm-hmm. Giants line. It's and hard. One of the reasons they said it is that they, and this is from an Eagles fan, that the Giants are bad at talent evaluation, that they've let a lot of guys go, not just from the line, but from other positions that are still playing in the league. And they are talking about um, Apple as one, they tossed out Apple as, as one example. Uh, the other is the tight end in Jacksonville. And there were some more. Evan Ingram you're talking about? Well, I mean, yes. remember, Evan had a problem staying healthy and also a case of the drop season. I think a change of environment did wonders for Evan. And I'm happy to see him doing well, and he is flourishing in Jacksonville. Sometimes you need a change, and you need a different voice, and I think Evan's benefited from that. I wouldn't use those two guys. To be honest with you, if you're going to make a case for anybody, to your point, Mike, and I don't know who you're talking about, Kevin Zeitler is probably the one guy I'd bring up, Paul. Cause I would agree. He's playing very good oh. football for Baltimore. He's an interior offensive lineman. Eli hey, Apple would not be the guy that I'd put atop that list. Eli Apple's yeah. bounced around I just, a few teams. I, I don't think that's know? a good example if you're going to point to somebody the Giants let go. And by the way, to be honest, you need to talk to those folks and say to them, hey, from a talent and skill set perspective, the Giants were right to take those guys. Eli Apple had a lot of other issues that made him a flameout in a, more than a couple of different teams. Same thing here with Evan Ingram. Evan Ingram had the skill set to be a good, productive NFL player, but there were other things that were at work, including economic, because he got really good yeah. money to go to Jacksonville. So I would say to your friends, they're the ones who were misguided, and they're the ones who were making an error in judgment, and- because the Giants' talent evaluators got it right. It's the other stuff that made them get rid of these players. Well, and here's the other reason why. You also look at, well, who came in when they parted ways with Evan Ingram? Well, Daniel Bellinger has turned out to be a really nice draft pick. Mm -hmm. And Darren Waller, unfortunately, struggled to stay healthy. But they went out and got a proven veteran at corner. They've drafted Deontay Banks. They've had some unsung heroes. Zeitler, to me, is somebody that holds value because you're still trying to find an answer on the interior of the line. So he fits two equations. He went on to still produce, and B, it's still a need for the Giants. That's why that would be the guy, if you're having a conversation amongst your friends, that I would talk more about than anybody else. Although he was also a cap casualty. Sure. no, no. They, they, they could not afford to keep There was him. money involved, but what I'm saying is it's still a position of need yes. for the Giants. Is Absolutely. What Remember, this was a question of talent evaluation. Right. I mean, I did Which is why know. your friends are the ones who are wrong. Well, I didn't know, for example, that Hernandez was still playing in a guard position out, I guess, for Arizona. Yeah, he and got they, paid they, pretty well to go, too. Yeah. That was economic. Yeah, they, took, they, they tossed out a lot. Um, but, so they were talking about the Giants' ability to evaluate people, and was that the result of coaching changes or some other phenomena going on? Well, we talk about this all the time. There are a lot of reasons why a rookie will either produce to his potential or he will never fulfill his potential. There are so many reasons. Some of them are medical. 
Some of them are his desire to do so. Some of it is his ability to learn and pick up the scheme. Some of it is he did he doesn't get along with his position coaches. Some of it is the coaches didn't do a good job of teaching him. There can be a number of reasons, including also just flat out just not developing as you should because players sometimes get lazy after they get the money in the NFL. Look, Will Hernandez has ability. He's got talent and ability. But there were disconnects. And even with the Cardinals, even though they gave him some money and he's still there, Will Hernandez has still never reached his full potential as far as his talent level is concerned. So, you know, you got to be really careful. I I feel bad that your friends have such a shallow, broad-brush opinion uh, you know, to give you because they're they're really mistaken. I think Mike also with Will Hernandez, he had several different offensive line coaches and different head coaches too from the time that he was with the Giants over the course of four years. So that's going to impact the development of not just an offensive lineman, any player. It's no different with a quarterback. Daniel Jones, for example, how many play callers he's worked with and different offensive line combinations. And you can look at Alex Smith I bring up all the time. He had, what, seven different offensive coordinators in his first eight years. Then all of a sudden, Jim Harbaugh and Greg Roman come in and he started to reach his potential. So you can't dismiss that. A lot of movement on the coaching front definitely contributes and impacts how you go about developing young talent. I think that holds true not just for the Giants. It holds true for the 31 Mm -hmm. other teams Mm -hmm. in the NFL. So the talent evaluation part, just make it clear to those folks, they're, they're misguided on that one. There are a lot of reasons why these players that we just talked about did not make it or work out here. Talent evaluation was not one of them. All right. Very good. All right, Mike. We couldn't we couldn't agree on how to rebuild the among 12 people. We had eight going one way, four absolutely had different separate distinct reasons uh for their approach to handling the uh, the Giants. All right, well, Mike. I, yeah, and that's and that's fair because and it is the phone it is extremely extremely difficult in today's NFL to rebuild an offensive line. And why is that? We talk all the time about how pro scouts will tell you college offensive linemen are not necessarily built to play the pro game. There's a lot of coaching and development and teaching that needs to be done. And the more of that that needs to be done, the more margin of error there is when you scout that person and project him into the NFL. It's This is not a secret. This has been going on now for a number of years where you know we've had a dilution of pro-offensive line talent. This is why when, when people start talking about the NFL should expand and add more teams and maybe add a division in Europe... Okay, where are you going to get enough of starting offensive linemen to put forth 32-plus teams in a quality situation? Where, where are these offensive line coming from? We don't have enough now. And, and people think they want to expand? We don't have 32 quality starting quarterbacks and barely have any quality number twos. And, and there are those who still want to add more teams to the league? How are we going to do that? It's hard. It's hard to develop offensive linemen because of the offseason structure, as you mentioned. It's also it's hard if you don't have good depth at that position. If you suffer an injury to two starters of your five, good luck 
trying to navigate that. I mean, we were just talking about the playoffs. So if you look at Detroit, to me, has one of the best offensive lines in football. I think yes. the Lions yes. are really strong up front. It's why they run the football very well. And it's why Dan Campbell and company have been able to turn the corner. But if you look at their starting group, you're going to find the bulk of the line was drafted. Mm-hmm. It's not as if they went out and said, we're going to pluck this guy away from that team. Taylor Decker, first-round pick in 2016, still with the team. Jonah Jackson, third-round pick in 2020. Frank Ragnow, first-round pick in 2018. And Pinay Sol, first-round pick in 2021. The only guy that they brought in from external measures was Vitae from the Eagles. Right. At right guard. That's it. Everybody else homegrown. And that's what the Giants tried to do with this young line. Sure. They used a very high-level assortment of draft picks to try to build this line. And previous guys that are no longer Without a doubt. Yeah, it's not as if they abandoned that position. Okay. Just the level of development and players coming to fruition was not the same as what we saw with Detroit. I think that's the biggest difference. They they brought in Evan Neal. He got hurt. They brought in Shane Lemieux. He got hurt. They tried to develop Nick Gates from being an undrafted rookie free agent. Then he got hurt. Yep. I mean, Azudu and McKeithen. Azudu and McKeithen got hurt. <laughs> yeah, it's been unfortunate. I mean, a lot of injuries. You know, you can't tell me hey, they haven't tried. And then, of course, a few years back, they signed like three, they thought, serviceable veterans over the course of a year. And all three of those guys wound up retiring and left. I mean, what are you going to do? Well, because if you look at the current offensive line, Andrew Thomas was your first round pick in 2020. John Michael Schmidt, second round pick in 2023, and Evan Neal was a first-round pick in 2022. So three of the five, you used pretty high draft capital through the draft. This is why I tell people that Kareem McKenzie may have been the greatest free agent signing that the Giants ever made as a franchise. Because when they got him from the Jets, he signed that deal, he played through the end of the contract, and was part of two Super Bowl championship teams. I mean, you know, he was outstanding. He was a Pro Bowl caliber player who didn't get to a Pro Bowl. And I'll tell you what, Sean O'Hara is probably kind of right yeah, under him Yeah, I was going to throw him out as well. You know, from Cleveland? Now, he only got the one Super Bowl. He didn't get the second one. He only got one. But, you know, he's certainly one of the highest level free agents. I know, Plexico Burris, I get it. Antonio Pierce, I get it. They've had, they've had other guys too. But along the offensive line... By far, McKenzie and O'Hara were the two greatest offensive line signings the Giants organization has ever made. And 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 I do appreciate that they got to the 2000 Super Bowl with Lomas Brown, Dusty Ziegler, and Glenn Parker. I appreciate that. But they're not these two guys. Well, also, I thought the bigger point you were going to make is if you look at the offensive linemen, you did not have all high first-round picks in that group. So no, you, you didn't. Found the talent, you developed the talent, you built the chemistry. You know, even if we throw in David Deal and some of these other guys, that to me is what is the standout of that group. Here, you're on the opposite end of the spectrum, Paul. Here, you actually used high-level resources on offensive linemen. You weren't going through well, practice squads or seventh-round picks the, or sixth-round picks. Super Bowl forty-two champion Richie Soybert was an undrafted rookie free agent, well, much like saying. much like Nick Gates was. Yeah, well, or even a guy like David Boss. 
Well, he was signed from the Niners. No, but, I mean, David Boss wasn't a pro bowler. Or, no, and, and quite quite frankly, I thought the Giants played better down the stretch in 11 with Kevin Booth after he replaced okay. Boss, and Boss had gotten well, injured. Well, Booth was Mr. Versatility, so I mean, you could plug that guy in Who anywhere. was a very, by the way, but another again, valuable component. two yeah. Super Bowl rings yeah. for Kevin Booth. But you need, he was the glue, because when somebody got hurt, you turned to Kevin Booth. My bigger takeaway was just the fact that those two offensive lines for the 07 and 11 teams were not full of high-priced no. Line. That but, was my point. But part of it, yes, were those guys really unified? Did those guys work their butts off? Pat Flaherty was the offensive line coach. Yep. And you had consistency in coaching. Too, and, and, and let's throw that other caveat in here. All those guys during that run stayed healthy. Yeah, well, they, they went through that starting streak. That's right. Yeah. They didn't have guys get hurt sure. that hurt their own development as well as the line's continuity. Sometimes you just got to have Lady Luck on your side instead of biting you in the butt. No, all of those factors have to come into play. But I do think, going back to the previous caller, the biggest difference between the current alignment versus the ones we're talking about is same offensive line coach for a lengthy period of time. Okay, And then health, too, plays a role. But also developing some of those younger guys. But in order to develop them, to they got to be on the field. They have to be on the field. So it's those three factors working together, and unfortunately, those three factors have not been in sync here in the current installment of the Giants. Let's head back to the phone lines. We got Jeff in New Hampshire joining us on BBKL. What's happening, Jeff? What do you got for us? Not much. Uh, I wanted to talk about the games this weekend and how it kind of ties into the Giants. But first, I just had to say real quick, Paul, I agree on the uh, Kareem McKenzie point. I know this topic comes up every year around free agency. Who's the best Giants free agent signing of all time? And he was great. To me, it's not even—it's not even a question. No, it's uh, not. How, how, many, how many free agents give you seven years? I know. I mean, we had McKenzie for seven seasons. You know, usually if you get three or four years out of a free agent, you're doing great. We got seven. And I don't, I don't know how many games that guy missed, but it wasn't many. No. Was seven years of rock-solid play on the right side of the line that yep. we haven't had since. Incredibly you know, durable, and and he was a starter the entire time. And he was underrated. Yep. He should have been getting a lot more credit, but, you know, the other guys, we had plenty of others getting the credit. But anyway, um, time into this weekend, I, I agree with most of your points about Dan Campbell and the Lions. I just wanted to kind of counterpoint another uh, way of looking at it. Their kicker hasn't been great this year, and if I'm not mistaken, he hasn't even been their kicker this whole season. Mm-hmm. And I know at least at least at least one of those field goals was a 47 yarder. Yeah, I'm it was when they were at the 30. It's not a, yeah, no, it's no chip shot. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's fair. They're not yeah. chip shots. Yeah. I, I'm I'm still with Paul. I would have kicked. Obviously, you know I agree. But the other side of that coin is, if Dan didn't coach like that all season, they're not in that game to begin with. Sure. So. Yeah. Well, I that, agree that's with why that. I had the I bigger issue with the very last play before they scored the touchdown and utilizing the timeout. That, to me, was the most costly and probably the one inexcusable factor. The others you could sell because, once again, his track record, regardless of how it impacted the scoring tally. Honestly, the time he kicked it is the time I think he should have gone for, it, and that was at the end of the first half when he did take the chip shot field goal. You get the touchdown there, and that's and if you don't get it, You've still got all the momentum. I, I think I, w- I would have gone for it on that one. But see, I would counter. Way, uh, I would counter to you that getting those points right before the half is too big a deal. 
you don't want to go for that fourth down, get stopped, and now going into that locker room, you got the Niners sky high. There's too much to lose. I think what 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 I what I like to do when when I consider a move like that, you look at the positive, what can you gain? And then you look at the negative and say, well, what could we lose? What could go wrong, worst-case scenario? And if the worst-case scenario it outweighs the benefit part of it, well, then you got to go for the, the left decision, or I guess we'll look in reverse at the cameras. But the point is, when you realize the devastation that the worst-case scenario could cause, you got to stay away from that, that part of the decision. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. It, it, you, you can make arguments for both ways. It didn't work out, so obviously we're going to second-guess it, but... Um, some things I like about the Lions, and I kind of want to tie into the Giants, I love the way they draft, and I, I love that they made it as far as they did this year. Uh, if you go back to last year's draft, all the draft picks mm-hmm. and all the you know, yeah. so-called experts, what did they criticize them for? All the players they took in the first two rounds. The value wasn't high enough, the positional value, all this other stuff. Well, to, to quote our favorite caller, Len, they just drafted good football players. That's right. Yeah. Positional value is a thing. It does matter sometimes, but it's not the only thing. Just like everything, it's not one be-all, end-all. Positional value is not the be-all, end-all. Correct. They drafted good football players that did what they needed to do, filled the roles they needed them to fill. All four of them were huge contributors this year. Mm-hmm. So what So what, what would the alternative be? You take a player that's not as good at a more important position. Right. How, how does that make your team better? I, you, I, you're, you're with me, man. Uh, we're, we're, you, you got some of that old-school blood in you. I love the phone call. Uh, because you can't get tied up in this stuff. And and this is why, quite frankly, I would not at all be adverse to the Giants trading down from six. I would not. Oh, I wouldn't either. I, I don't, the problem is I don't know that somebody's going to want to trade up to six if the first three quarterbacks go one, two, three. But you never know what can happen. Well, so. hopefully there'll be some sucker who wants one of those quarterbacks because if they can pick up another valuable pick or two, that might be the best way for Joe Shane to go. Oh, I'd have no problem with that at all. But another, the other team, and I know they didn't make the Super Bowl, but another team that they're in the hunt every year, and they're a team I really like. I like the way they build their team, and that's why they're consistent as the Ravens. We said mm-hmm. the same thing about them two years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Two first-round picks. They drafted a center and a safety. Mm-hmm. And that safety only fell because of his 40-yard dash time, right. which had to be one of the dumbest things I've seen in the draft in the last 10 years. Watch the guy play football. Yeah, Kyle Hamilton. What his 40-yard time is. Yeah, Kyle Hamilton. He's first-team all-pro yeah. now. He fell because he had a slow 40-yard time, and he plays a so-called not important position. Yeah. Did he look important on the field Sunday? <laughs> well, that's why it's good, in the eye of the player. it's in the eye of the beholder. Also, in terms of how a team is going to utilize that player, I mean, they utilize Kyle Hamilton. They make sure they capitalize on his athleticism. It's the same thing with your Lions point. You know, Brian Branch, integral piece of the defense. Sam Laporta was a big-time target for Jared Goff. Jameer Gibbs, it took a little time for him to get on the field, but when David Montgomery got hurt, they showcased Gibbs even more, and it became a solid one-two punch. So it's not just also bringing the good players, it's getting them on the field and utilizing them. That's what I think the Ravens and Lions are effective in doing. The coaching staff in the front office is being on the same page, getting the right kind of players, knowing how to use the kind of players. Sure. Um, It's pretty obvious there. And then just the last point from this weekend, you can't not mention Steve Spagnuolo. Obviously, he's got his ties to the Giants. I mean, this guy's got to be one of the best defensive coordinators in the history of the game. Mm -hmm. We're we're fortunate. We've had two of them, you know, from what Belichick did with his years with Parcells. Yes, sir. Spagnuolo. He's going to be in that conversation, especially if the Chiefs win another one. He's already won two with the Chiefs, plus the one he won with us. Yes. 
I can still I can still remember going back to 2008 when he left. I I was I didn't think he was ready to leave and be a head coach. He was still a young coordinator. I was hoping he would stick around and wait till Coughlin retired and become our head coach. But that's just unfortunately not the way it works anymore. Guys want to take off after two or three years as a coordinator and doesn't well, always work out. But uh, if you remember it's how it's worked out since after 2007, he had gotten an immediate call from Washington, and they interviewed him and they wanted him to be their head coach. And Spags oh, wow. went down there and interviewed with them, and they did not make a formal offer. And he wound up withdrawing after his first interview because he saw that it was just not a good situation. And I think we know about all the different things that have come out from that organization over the years since that time. Uh, And so the second time around, when he then had an opportunity to interview with the St. Louis Rams, now the Rams, as you may remember, were undergoing a lot of financial turmoil, and there was a lot of uh, talk about them leaving St. Louis, which they eventually did. And that organization was was in shambles. And Spags just decided, you know what? I've already passed up one situation, uh, I, I can't, I can't, I can't pass up this one, and so that's why he went to take the job as head coach of the St. Louis Rams. And as it turned out, the instability within that organization was a major part as to why that failed so badly. And I, and you I, know what? You know, you know what's too bad about that? He hasn't had another chance since. Correct. So and like, I feel bad. I, I, I agree with you. I feel bad about it. I. So look at this guy that's taking the job with the Panthers. I think about this a lot, and everybody else says there's only 32 coaching jobs. You get a chance to take one, you got to take one. Right? Yeah. I can't. I can't. I can't think of a more unstable. I think the Panthers are going to replace the Commanders right now with uns, their owners. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, they've had six stable. coaches in six years. So yeah. I mean, that's all you that's need to I'm know. Saying. It's, it's messy. messy. Yeah, but 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 the problem. But the problem is though, if you're Dave Canales, who's to say that another team comes calling? I think you got to look it through that lens. And uh, you I understand. You can't say, oh well, if he hangs out with Baker Mayfield, then they have a few other good seasons. I mean, look, Eric Bieniemy. Eric Bieniemy. When did his chance come? So you know that's yeah. why when you get them, you got to grab you them. Know, I don't it, blame anybody for saying to themselves, "Oh well, you know, Carolina is dysfunctional." I don't know. They believe every candidate believes they're going to be the guy that's going to fix the team. I'm yeah. sure Dave thinks the same way. And, and you know that's okay. why, as bad as I feel for Spags, I'm glad he at least got a chance. Now it was a messy situation in St. Louis, and again, it contributed to his downfall. But at least he got a chance. And remember, again, I have to stress this. He only went there, even though it may have been against his better judgment, because he had already turned down a chance with Washington and did not know if he'd ever get another shot. Yeah, I mean, there's only so many times you can gamble. And the other thing is, I'm not saying he was an old man, but he was in his mid-40s when he left to take the Rams job, Mm -hmm. because that was about 20 years ago. And he had been an established assistant with the Eagles for many years. Well, it was about 15 years ago. Yeah, before he came to the Giants. So, I mean, the bottom line is, he wasn't a young, up-and-coming guy at that point. He had been in the NFL and had paid his dues. And remember, Coughlin then hung around till 2015. So, you know, 2009, you get the head coaching job. Even if he was of the philosophy, I'll wait. I'll be Coughlin's successor. It's a long time to wait while the rest sure. of the NFL landscape is changing. Oh, I can't yeah. fault you him. Never, you never know how it's yeah, going to go. Yeah, for taking the job. I don't fault him at all. Yeah. And, and you know what? Another chance. Had Spags turned down St. Louis and stayed, Giants would have won another two or three championships, and he would have gotten his phone ringing off the hook anyway. So Possibly. people would have been begging him to be another coach. <laughs> but it's worked out good. He gets to be part of the next dynasty. And, I mean, let's be honest, 
everybody's going to remember Reed, Mahomes, Kelsey. You know, he's the rock star, whatever. They're not winning anything without – their offense is not explosive. It's not the greatest show on turf. They scored 17 points yesterday. They're sure. not where they are without the defense this year. They're not yep. in the Super Bowl yeah. without the defense this year. He's the secret sauce. He is, somebody tweeted the other day, he's the secret sauce. The fact that nobody wants to give him another chance to be a head coach, he's the reason. He's the biggest reason outside of Reed and Mahomes that they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. If they didn't have him, I don't know that they'd be on this historic run right now. I really don't. Well, so another guy that deserves a lot of credit and appreciate the phone call, Jeff, is also Dave Merritt, who is secondary, secondary coach. coach. Let's not forget about him because guys like Legereus Sneed, and Reed on the back end, mm-hmm. you know, he's had his fingerprints all over those players. So let's not forget about, I would say it's him and Spags, who obviously have a lot of well, experience working together. You said uh, earlier, uh, there was a key word, continuity. It doesn't matter if you're talking about a line or a secondary or a coaching staff. Continuity yeah. is is a valuable asset. And that's why it's, once again, it's impressive what the Chiefs have done because, I mean, remember, there were years where Spags was there and they were not the number two scoring defense. He's had to work through to fine-tune that defense. See, outside, but this year in particular, it's really been a standout. Outside year. of his uh, ill-fated situation when he was with the Saints, okay, that was just a mess. They did not have players that year for him. Yep. Outside of that year, you look at his defensive coordinator track record and... If not every other season, certainly in most other seasons, he got those defenses to max out. He got the most out of their abilities or to play above their heads. Yeah. And that, to me, is the true grade of how great Steve Spagnuolo is as a DC. And I'm sure, not that I've had a conversation with him, but if you ask him, listen, if he continues to win and be in a position to win Super Bowls. I understand everybody may want to be a head coach, but it's not as if it's a bad place that he's in right now. And him and Andy Reid go way back. They do. Okay? Because they were together in Philadelphia. So he's a very modest man. If, correct. You know, Spags, yeah. yep. Spags does not, no, he's does not, a not crave the spotlight. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, he simply wanted to be a head coach because all professional coaches, usually at one time or another, aspire to take the next step up. He wasn't going to the Rams out of ego. It was just a natural progression for his career. Now, whether or not he feels that same hunger to do so today, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I text with him occasionally, but, but I haven't spoken to him now yeah. in, in, uh, in a few years. But I will say this. I will say this. Um, he has commanded respect up and down throughout the National Football League. It's not just the two of us sitting here at a table waxing poetic about this guy. He is universally regarded as one of the better defensive minds of his time. And here's the other issue, I think, and not that age should play a factor, but if you look at this coaching cycle, it just seems to be a young man's game right now. Well, that yeah, that's the teams. trend. So when Belichick, Mike Vrabel, and Pete Carroll may go without getting other opportunities, mm-hmm. unfortunately, even though Spag is a really good coach, teams are now enamored with the 35-year-old who runs a shifty offense, Yep, and there's no guarantee that that translates to being a good head man. Ben Johnson supposedly in line to become the Washington head yeah. coach now. Look, was the evidence really good that he was part of something that was exciting and positive? Sure. I still tend to think that head coaches in this league should be 
a little more experienced and be a little bit more advanced in the age. Well, I also don't think teams should get caught up in scheme and system. I think if you're a good head coach, you can empower mm-hmm. a good play caller. You can go out and yes. hire that play caller. Yes. You should be an individual that can delegate responsibilities, command a room, and be very detailed-oriented. I think those mm-hmm. are the factors. I think too much now of the conversation is finding the next Sean McVay. And not yeah. to say Sean McVay is not a good coach. I know. McVay has balanced both effectively. But you can have a good coach and they can get a Sean McVay and develop a Sean McVay mm-hmm. is what I'm saying. Because who do you think developed Sean McVay? Washington, Mike Shanahan. Mike Shanahan, great head coach, right? Yeah. He then developed all of these young guys that are now growing in right. to their own roles. So it can be done again. All right. With that being said, that is going to wrap up the latest edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Appreciate everybody tuning in. We'll be back up and running again on Tuesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern. And a reminder, today's episode of Big Blue Kickoff Live, part of the Giants platforms everywhere and Giants.com slash podcast. For Paul Dettino, I'm Lance Meadow. Stay locked to Giants.com for all the latest, and we'll speak to you on Tuesday right here on BBKL. Have a good one.